Metallica, here they come, the kings of metal. Hey everybody, I'm Lizzie. And I'm Joe. We're from the band Hailstorm. And you're listening to Middle Up Your Podcast. podcast i'm ethan luck and i'm clint wells and this is episode 117 and we were uh, jumping back into our year in the life series this is 1995 here's what i like about cranking into 1995 is we are starting to get a little taste of the load sausage and uh which is is not vegan by the way no the 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 um the lab results are in and uh, the cultures have come back and uh yeah the load sausage is pretty much 170,000 percent 100 percent meat so yeah yeah it's it's it, after all these years uh the, the the results are in everybody we're sorry to say that it is uh it's not vegetarian nor vegan but we are going to have a really good time on this episode um if you may be able to tell you may not ethan is on a tour bus where are you at tonight ethan uh i am in uh, charleston south carolina uh we just i literally just got off stage packed up my stuff and came straight to the bus to record this uh the need to breathe guys have a really cool charity they do uh where they uh help with um uh health in uganda and so they do this big charity thing that they auction off a bunch of stuff uh Bo, the guitar player does paintings you know like autograph guitar things like that very cool really yeah really cool cause so we just got done playing that and i'm here tomorrow as well doing uh the longer show and a whole they they do like a charity golf tournament tomorrow all sorts of cool stuff wow well cool um i'm keeping it real at hq2 my wife is upstairs watching desperate housewives my kid is maybe pretending to be asleep in her bedroom so we may interview your daughter at some point. This is all making for a lovely metal up your podcast stew. Now, if you're joining <laughs> us for the first time, we are an all Metallica podcast, as you can tell by the touring convos. Ethan and I are two professional touring musicians, and we try to make time every week to talk about our favorite metal band, the mighty Metallica. This week's no different. We're going to be burning down 1995 in excruciating detail. So much detail. And on this day, one James Senior Hetfield had a battle movement that shook the corners of the four winds of the earth. And at those four corners of the earth were the rifts to King Nothing. And at those four corners sat the mighty rifts that would become the load sausage. Also not vegan. <laughs> Still <laughs> not vegan. <laughs> Before we get into that, here's what I want to launch into. Now, last week we covered the very exciting news that the boys, sort of out of nowhere seemingly, announced this S&M 2 show. Now, if you've been following on the forums and the pre-sales, you've been trying to get tickets, then you are well aware that this whole ticketing situation was a total shit show. 
It was awful, yeah. And that the pre the legacy presale happened, then the fifth member presale, and basically what happened is people couldn't get tickets. The site froze. They were blocked out, and a bunch of bots, people like StubHub and Secondary Markets, bought tickets, and now they're <laughs> now they're selling tickets for insanely fifteen thousand dollars. Some of these tickets. Yeah, it's insane. I remember the, the really the morning after they went on sale for for fan club and stuff. I went straight to StubHub just out of curiosity. And that day, the highest one was like eight grand. Well, a few days later, you and I were texting with our friend Chris. You're just talking about how they're upwards of fifteen grand, which is just bonkers. I don't know if there is. Here's the thing: there should there shouldn't be a Metallica fan in the world that is going to pay that much money because all you're going to do is give most of that money to some fucking asshole. <laughs> no, absolutely not. I mean, <clears throat> it's 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 the normal scalping problem. It just seems really heightened because the show is so special and people wanted to go so bad. Now, Dan, who goes by SpiderDan13 on the forums, which the forums have been a really interesting arena to watch all of this stuff happen, but here's, right. he released this today. Now, we can speculate on what this means, but I want to just read this on the show in case no one's seen it. It's a little long, but I'll try to read it um, with uh, some a little bit of excitement. He says, well, it's been a hell of a week, hasn't it? I wanted to take a minute out of this Saturday to let you all know that we hear you loud and clear. We had a rough fan club pre-sale where the fan club demand greatly outweighed the number of tickets that we had available and was marred by some technical problems. Then there was the public pre-sales and general on-sale where, again, demand just trounced the number of available tickets. One thing that's been mentioned in a few posts, and I'd like to point out as well, this is a celebration of the opening of the Chase Center, which is gearing up to be a world-class arena. That means Metallica sharing the spotlight and the fan base with the Golden State Warriors, the San Francisco Symphony, Michael Tilson Thomas... The Chase Center itself, and also simply what the event represents to the city and the people of San Francisco, it truly was a perfect storm. That all being said, to reiterate what I said, we're all listening to you. The band is blown away by the response to the show, and your voices have not gone unheard in terms of the frustration that we all encountered this week. We're already looking at ways to improve this for future pre-sales. And then lastly, and most importantly, he says this. Between all of us here, keep watching the site, meaning Metallica.com, over the next week or so, the boys are working on an quote-unquote obvious solution to the issue. And then he writes, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, so stay tuned. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of speculation happening on the forums and on Twitter and amongst us in our private text threads. What does that mean? Now, I'm choosing to take the plunge and say, I think that means they're going to add a second show on Saturday night, September 7th. And possibly, I think yeah. and possibly even more shows elsewhere. I think you're right. I mean, I think at the bare minimum, they'll probably add a second show. Um, hopefully, there's a way they're planning also to kind of combat these bots that go in and buy all these tickets and leave these fans like by the wayside with nothing in their hands. You know, a lot of bands like the Foo Fighters have, have kind of hit this kind of stuff head on in the past. Um, Pearl Jam, bands you know what like I think that, they need you know. to do, Ethan? I think they need to hire Matthew Lillard from Hackers. And your name goes to like 17 computers a day. 1984, you're right, man. That's a typo. Orwell's here now. He's living large. We have no names, man. No names. We are nameless. Can you fry? Meet Serial Killer. Eyes and Fruit Loops. But he does know things. Ooh, good call. Not Matthew Lillard, the actor, but the, his character he played. What was his character's name in Hackers? Oh, man, I, dude, I haven't seen that movie in forever. <laughs> I have like no idea. Nemo or Zero or Reflax or Reflon, Carmax. That's it. Carmax? Uh, it's, it's Reflon. Ref, it is Reflon. They need, yeah. But all joking aside, 
hire some tech genius, get Mark Zuckerberg's fucking butthole, and just find a way to block the bots. Yeah, it's a tough thing. I mean, well, you know, there's some sites if you go on and buy certain things or you're signing up for something, there's always a box to check. It's like to prove that you're not a bot or you type in something. Or you know those annoying ones where it's like, click every picture that has a bumper of a car. Or you know what? Make it old school and make everyone go stand in fucking line and make the the ticket name has to match the license. Right, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know? I mean, it seems, it's weird. It's I mean, it happens constantly with all sorts of tours, big and small. Um, there's there's got to be a better solution. Now, here's one thing that I noticed with a lot of people on Instagram and Twitter talking about this. A lot of people are pissed off, rightfully so. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's a lot of people that are like, oh, look, it's fucking Metallica. Why can't they just fix the problem and blah, right. blah, blah. It's like, look, this is something that, you know, I know Clint and I have probably seen somewhat firsthand. But it's not as simple as just going like, oh, fuck the bots. We got it. Like, right. it, this takes this takes extra planning to try to figure out what to do in this situation. It's not just an overnight solution by Metallica and their management. Yeah, it's true. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts, that especially I thought it was interesting that Dan mentioned, like, this, is, this isn't just a Metallica show. It's a grand opening of really San Francisco's sort of first premiere arena ever. So... Right. There, there's sports fans. There are fans of this conductor by himself. There are fans of the SFO that are just fans, you know, because they patron the arts in that way. That They don't even probably know who Metallica is, some of them. Right, yeah. So I guess it's interesting to just be watching the site. Now, if you don't know what that means, Metallica.com, it's free to become a fifth member. I would encourage you all to go do it and get involved over on the forums. It's a fun place to meet other nerds like yourselves. Like yourselves, right. like Joyce and like Lucius. Like all of you, just nerds. Now, we're going to move out of the S&M tube um, um, conspiracy corner and move into uh, some of the housekeeping. So go leave us a positive review on iTunes. We are almost at 400, which is exciting. Um, Very. We have a thing called Patreon. You're going to hear a commercial about it later. It's basically a way for you to support the show financially. Because believe it or not, making a show this goddamn good, this consistently, takes time and money. And that's a way for you to help offset some of those costs for us. At the bare minimum, we like to give these folks a shout out. Ethan, would you like to speak their names, please? I will speak of thine names. Pleases Matt... me muchly to speak of the patrons, yes. The number one name is Matt French, followed by <laughs> Angelo Gonzalez, who increased his pledge. <laughs> he increased his pledge. <laughs> increased his pledge, yes. Increased his pledge, he did. Well, we thank you guys for um, getting on board and increasing your pledge. Every bit of that helps. Really, anything cool about the show that's beyond just two dudes sitting in front of a mic, I'm talking about our merch, our cover, our real black and EPs. Um, <clears throat> all of that stuff really is just made possible by the patrons. So we really appreciate it the is. folks over there who are involved at that level. Uh, we're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, MetalUpYourPodcast.com, where you can buy... Cover our roll black in volume one for six bucks. The dagger logos are there and in stock. The easiest way, the direct channel to the heart, the aorta, if you will, of Metal Up Your Podcast is our email, which is show at gmail.com. We like to take a pulse on the Metal Up Your Podcast community, and we're going to do that right now in what I like to call the motherfucking email corner. Let's go. All right, you want to lead us off here? I would love to. Our first email is from Angelo Gonzalez. He says, hey, brothers, another great episode. I actually listened to it twice. What an instant classic. Wow. Thanks, thanks fellas. We Have got a, a lot of week. good feedback about the S&M 2 episode. 
Yeah, it, it's gotten a lot of listens uh, on on track to maybe become one of our more popular episodes. Yeah, interesting. Who'd have thought? I mean, I think with all that SNM two news, I think people just maybe kind of look towards us too as another as another option of information to see what we had to say about it. Any other info we could have given them, but um, man, uh, it was it was overwhelming. Thank you guys. Angelo ends real quick by saying, "Thanks, fellas. Have a great week." Um, who all seen the Leprechaun? Say yeah, 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 yeah. Angelo. <laughs> Yeah! Give me fuel, give me fire, give me the leprechaun desire, yeah! Yeah, give me a pot of gold! Alright, our friend Nate McCoviak writes, Hey guys, been a while since I actually wrote into the show. You guys have been on a phenomenal roll with the pods, especially the listen-throughs. I forgot how good season in the, Seasons in the Abyss is. Ethan, pleasure hanging out with you and watching you perform with Need to Breathe. I've become a fan of theirs because of you. Can't wait to catch up with Clint next month when he plays with Rodney Atkins. I, guess, I think I'm playing the same venue you guys played, which is really yeah, funny. That, oh my God! The world is so small. Honey, you probably even saw flies of our own fate. Did you see a flyer that said Rodney? Oh, Atkins? I saw I saw flies. I saw, my favorite one I saw was a Chris Angel poster. I just love him and his magician stuff. Oh, honey, we play this when we play the circuits up in New England. Here, here are the other bands that we usually see next to us. We see magicians like who did you say, Chris? What's his last name? Chris Angel. He's mind freak. Oh my God! I can't believe he has the voice of an angel. He's the face of an angel. I can't believe I forgot his last name. What's Angel? Our last email his name is angel also we'll see honey we'll see people like chris angel playing right next to us we'll see uh one of my all-time favorites jackal oh with the, they do the chainsaw solos they do the chainsaw solos honey i don't know how they do it i don't know how they work it through the guitar pedals and all this and such but the honey we see jackal we see kicks sometimes we see cinderella it's wonderful to be on that circuit and sometimes even Skid Row, who I love, but it's a different singer. It's not Sebastian Bach. No, but it's honey, okay. my beloved Sebastian Bach is no longer playing there. He's he's currently at home playing pinball on his Kiss pinball machine with his dog. He prob- with his dog Luciano Lucianiosius. <laughs> with his dog Mozart. <laughs> um, okay. Ooh, that was quite a tangent. He says, "I think okay. Clint may be onto something with his theory of why the band played No Leaf Clover in the Unforgiven Three. I went back and checked the set list from late '98, early '99." And the songs they played largely resembled the SNM set list right down to song order. They slotted in the Outlaw Torn right before the Berkeley gigs, which gives Clint's theory credibility. Well, I, I think it's a great theory, by the way. Well, I wish I had pinned it. Um, I believe I probably read it somewhere. Probably from one of the know it all dipshits on fucking Reddit. Good God. I posted uh, this SNM2, like the, the Dan thing that he wrote. Right, and I was like, "Hey, looks maybe there might be some new S and M shows, uh, more more than the one they announced. You know, like adding a second show. A lot of uh, vegan Ethans over there, if you know what I mean." Oh uh, yeah, I I, you know I didn't that? read it that way at all. Uh, I read it completely differently than that. Uh, why would they add a second show? You live it or lie it. You live it or lie it. Here's what a lot of people really think is going to happen if it's not adding shows. I'm curious what you think about this, Ethan. As they think they're okay. going to make it like a live simulcast, like a live stream that everyone can like pay for to watch. Well, that'd be cool too. I mean, guess who's going to pay for it? You and I. <laughs> you and I are going to buy S and M two through the Wi Fi. On pay per view. <laughs> they're making a pay per view event. One night only. Me Metallica S and M two. Watching S and M. PP to PP. That's the only way to watch it. <laughs> All right. Well, um, for those of you who don't know, Nick Makoviak is the homie, the very talented dude who does the artwork for our cover our well blackened EPs. And so it's nice to hear from him. He's a longtime patron and a good friend of ours. So thanks for the email, Nick. Yeah. Thank you, Nick. Our next email is from Matthew Litzow. 
He says, you guys have been on fire with your show, and, I, um, and, uh, and I've been on this long, fun, crazy ride since day one. Metallica is constantly full of surprises, and we, and we all can't wait to see what you have in store for us in the future. This is truly the best podcast out there. Sincerely, Matthew. Well, Mattel. thank you. Wow. Thanks, dude. Thank you. Thank you. Matt French writes in, who is a new patron, by the way. He says, hi, Clint and Ethan, and assorted alter egos. Really enjoyed the last show on your fantasy SNM, SNM2 set list, especially the dual Unforgiven trilogies. That would be undeniably badass. And honestly, even if they only did one and three, it'd still be pretty awesome. Hey, man, don't leave two out. Two is great. Don't you dare go leaving two out of the top. Don't you dare ever leave two. Don't you fucking dare. He says, this is, sorry, real quick. This go is ahead. a good way. If, if you ever want someone to really like know you're serious, you, you put in a dramatic pause. So you say something like this. Don't you ever leave out number two. Yeah. Or I totally agree with you. The can't, we cannot deny the power of the pause. I would even go a step further. Put the pause in every word. Don't. You dare leave that out. You know what I mean? It works. Yeah, it works. You guys, people will t- it will take you more serious. You got to put a little extra flavor on dare too. The don't and the you need to be very similar. Don't you dare. See what I'm doing there? Yeah, you're kind of going up a little crescendo there. Um, we'll be giving our TED talk on uh, how to emphasize and be serious in conversation at a later date. Brand tick 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 tick. Matt goes on to say, I was lucky enough to get tickets in the pre-sale on Tuesday. Wanted to give a shout out to my friend and yours, Anya, who generously loaned me the cash to do the pre-sale. What a legend and all-around amazing human she is. And to cap that off, she missed getting the pre-sale tickets herself. So we will be double-teaming the general release to make sure she gets some there. So what he's saying is, Anya, in a, in a fit of generosity, loaned him the funds to do this pre-sale, and then she didn't even get tickets herself. Wow. Well, I mean, we've talked about this before, man. The, the Metallica family will help each other out. Obviously, Anya helped Matt out, and I think that everyone's going to help Anya out to make sure that she can get in the show. <clears> well, and I didn't read that part to embarrass her. I wasn't trying to do that. I just wanted to point out that what you just mentioned is that I know that Chris Yurgis was trying to buy more tickets to sell to Met Clubbers at the face value, not at the insanely inflated price of $15,000 fucking dollars. <laughs> I know that Andy Brown and I think our friend Tiffany Simonson we're trying to help Nicole, uh, our friend Nicole Williams, get tickets. I think that was happening all around. Was Met family trying to help each other out, which I just think yeah, is so sure. cool. It makes me so proud to be on the ride with everybody. That's awesome. Matt ends by saying, I want to thank you guys again for everything you do for the community, the inspiration you provide. Since listening to the show last November, I've learned to appreciate Metallica in such a different level, and I've started playing guitar seriously again for the first time in about 20 years and enjoying putting the effort in that I never had as a sulky teenager. Keep doing what you do. Peace, Matt, from Nottingham, UK, and New Jersey. New Jersey. Well, cool, Matt. Good luck playing guitar, homie. Stick with it. And yeah. b- b- find the sulky teenager within. It's, he's still in there, probably. Oh, he's still in there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, yeah, and good luck, and we can't wait to hear about your progress. Your progress. And good luck to you, good sir. Good luck and good night and goodbye and good morning. <laughs> and welcome to our neighborhood. Um, last email is from Danny Derryberry. Oh, Danny Derryberry. He says, hello, boys. Uh, just giving you a holler. No need to read it on the show. Well, too late. Too late. Uh, but been a while since I've written in, but want you guys to know that I'm listening and I'm so excited with the success of the show. You do the work and it shows. Nice. Here's to, 
Here's to however long you wish to continue the show and horns up, bitches. See, I'll, I like little innocuous emails like that. Just nice little encouragements. They're short, they're sweet, they're to the point. Straight I to like the point. It. Love it. Well, look, it's that easy. You write in. Here's the deal. I answered like 70 emails the last few days. These have been piling up a little bit. We've been super busy. Even if we don't read them on the show, Ethan and I take the time to respond. There were some emails about Demon Hunter that were strictly for Ethan. And uh, yeah. he, he was able to talk some Demon Hunter with some folks. So if you're a patron especially, we usually read it on the show. And you get motherfucking immortalized in metal podcasting forever. Metal up your podcast show at gmail.com. Let's get the hell out of the email corner and start talking about 1995. Let's do it. Hey, it's Clint from Metal Up Your Podcast, and we hope you're enjoying the Metal Tales from the Road series. If you've been keeping up with us, then you already know that we've covered every stop on the 2018-2019 North American Arena Tour, and we look forward to catching up with all of our European friends later this year on the Stadium Tour overseas. And there's more! After the Stadium Tour, we are continuing the Metal Tales series for any Metallica show in the past. Maybe you saw one of the Orion Festivals. Maybe you were at the Channel in 1984 and Cliff Burton bought you a beer. Maybe you were at one of the 30th anniversary shows or you just saw a regular ass show in North Dakota somewhere. We want to hear from you. Since Ethan and I started Metal Up Your Podcast, we've wanted to find a way for listeners to call in and share their stories. Well, this is it. To make yourself eligible for a future or past Metal Tales episode, please consider joining us on Patreon. For $5 a month, you not only get to come on the show as a guest, you also get both of our Cover Our World Blackened EPs, monthly giveaways like deluxe box sets, rare vinyl, posters, and other goodies. You get early access to our YouTube videos, and we also let you ask our guests like Ray Burton, Michael Wagner, Hailstorm, members of Slipknot, your very own questions. For what essentially amounts to two cups of coffee a month, you can ensure that Metal Up Your Podcast continues to grow in quality and content. For any of you on the ride with us, we love you, we thank you, peace, and adios. Okay. Well, let's do it. What do we got first here? Well, here's here's what I would like to do before we jump in. Sometimes we're good about this, sometimes we're not, but let's kind of like get a little re-up for what was happening at the end of 1994. Now, here's what happened at the end of 1994. Basically, they wrapped up the insane amount of touring they did for the Black Album. Yeah. So that's what you have to imagine, is that the boys are finally kind of done with all that shit. And they put out, they put out Binge and Purge as kind of a capstone to that whole deal. And it's interesting about the Binge and Purge release. I was reading about it today in uh, uh, Joel McIver's book. You know, at the time, I don't really remember it this way because I was so young. I, I wonder if you do, Ethan. But at the time, okay. it was a really big deal that the box set was so big and that it was like 90 bucks. And they were they were kind of criticized for it. Because what most bands did is to, you know, document a tour or whatever is they put out like a single disc and it was probably 20 bucks and that was it. As we all right. know, we got like we got Mexico City, we got Seattle '89, we had VHSs, we had CDs, we had like a yep. seventy-page booklet, a stencil, a backstage pass. It was in a road case, and uh, but at the time that was kind of a big deal. And when Lars was asked by someone who know Mick Wall or whoever, 
why they did it that way. Of course, it's very Metallica of them to sort of do something no one's really ever done to do it kind of bigger and better than everyone. Of course, yeah. But he talks about the, the sort of spiritual and psychological significance of like getting it all just out so they could be done with it. Yeah, closing the chapter on the Black Album. Exactly. There, I mean. That's it. That's it. You just said it. You just said in one sentence what I've been trying to say in like fifteen. What Clint actually means is close the chapter. You. Oh, pardon me. Let me translate. Closing the chapter on the Black Album. Yes. And you just For fucking ninety distilled shillings. It. <laughs> well, you know, I I think you know I didn't buy it when it came out. I got it uh, maybe a few years later. Same. Um, but you know, to me, it's like yeah, it was expensive, but. I mean, Metallica put out their first ever live box set, let alone even live album. There's multiple live albums in this one box set, VHSs slash DVDs, whatever. I mean, they gave their fans a ton of stuff. It's going to cost a little more, but I mean, I, I had no problem. I think when I got it, it was it was down maybe like 50 bucks or something. Well, one of the things that Lars is saying, and who knows, it's this might be PR bullshit. We all know his business acumen, but... He basically said they had to charge it that to justify what it cost to make it. You know, at that point... They were touring stadiums around the whole world. I don't think, I mean, of course it's still a business, but I don't think they were trying to just make money. I don't think they were trying to gouge. I, I think you're right. I, I think that to, to put that thing together with that kind of packaging, it's really expensive, and that's what they had to sell it at for it to make sense. Well, I mean, if you think about it this way, an average t- a cost of a T-shirt that a band sells at a show is around, depending on how many colors on the $700. shirt. $700. $700 per shirt. So Metallica actually gives them away, basically. Um <laughs> But you know it's probably anywhere between four and six bucks, depending on. And now, obviously, the more you order, the cheaper it, cheaper it is. So maybe you know, maybe so let's say two fifty or three bucks Metallica. But you know, something like this, the materials that are involved in this thing are no joke, and it's multiple formats too. Right. On top of that, right? So, I just thought that was interesting reading that today because <clears throat> I don't even know if we mentioned that on our nineteen ninety four episode, but I think it sets an interesting tone for. You know, this is a really huge pivotal year of them moving into writing what, at least until St. Anger, would be their most divisive material. Absolutely. And so I think as we sort of delicately wade into the load-reload waters here in these next few year uh, in the life episodes, I want to just sort of keep remembering context because I think that's so important of why they were writing the songs they were writing, why they looked the way they looked, why the artwork was a certain way. Lars getting into U2 and Oasis, James getting into Corrosion of Conformity and Alice in Chains, the death of metal via the fucking shotgun blast of Kurt Cobain, literally and figuratively. So so all of those things are really swirling around here as we roll into 95, right? You feel good about that? I feel great. I ate a lot of salad today. I'm feeling very cleaned out, very good, very great. I did. I had roughage for dinner. I had a, a lovely salad from some local place here. Mm. And uh, now I'm, uh, I, I, I think we talked about it an episode or maybe a few episodes ago, but I did, last tour I did a sober tour. This tour, I'm going to not go crazy, but I did make a beverage tonight for the episode. You slow down, you. You slut. I'm going to send you to the same place Mr. Jimmy James Sr. Het went. Don't you ever make a drink without me. <laughs> oh, boy. I miss you. We're far away. I feel very far away from you. Well, we literally, we about eight, eight, about an eight or nine hour drive away from each other. Oh, I wanted to mention while I was on talking about Rodney Atkins, on April 9th, we're playing the Today Show. 
And, no uh, way. Yeah. So you can all watch that if you like that kind of shit. And our single just cracked the top 20, which is exciting. Hell yeah. Dude, this is great news. This is news to me. Yeah. Um, so anyway, put, put a, put a pin in there if you want. Now, getting into 1995 from Metallica. So, did not a lot happen in January. Boys, I imagine, took a lovely, lovely vacation. Not with their families, with each other. Yeah, just the four of them. Just sliding down the old fire pole like the fucking Beatles in Hard Day's Night. Yep. Um, waking up, Kirk fucking making some vegan breakfast for the boys. James literally killing a buffalo, eating every part of it, not letting it go to waste. That's right. Yeah, buffalo feet for breakfast. Lars is is he wakes up early to go find. He's probably uh, who knows sniffing Noel Gallagher's butthole for breakfast. I think that, or usually he he would probably be on the bal- balcony overlooking the Pacific Ocean, uh, creating a lovely painting for the guys. Mm, creating a lovely painting. Some hat with some happy trees. What's Jason up to? Jason? Oh man, God, Jason. Well, uh, usually in the morning he'd go out and forage for exotic mushrooms to mix in with the eggs um, and buffalo feet that James is cooking up. Oh my God, dude! I totally forgot about how often he loved. He used to love to forage for exotic mushrooms. He oh he loves it. It's That's why it's he, really you can attribute his lack of uh, songwriting credits to his love of foraging for exotic mushrooms because he spent so much time doing that and not enough time honing tasty riffs. Somebody right now is on Google going, wait, he liked to forage mushrooms. Wait, someone on, someone right now up. is on Google going, what does forage mean? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the first thing that kind of pings up on the on the scene with Metallica in '95 is Lars and James go on air for the last two hours to say farewell. I guess KNAC, KNAC in Long Beach, which is yeah. a, which is a station you were familiar with, right? Oh my God! Of course, yeah. I had a KNAC T-shirt. It was, yeah, Pure Rock one hundred five point five. So, so uh, I guess it was there was a huge was, deal then, you know? Huge deal. No, that that was literally like they uh, they used to do they used to do a thing on on Tuesday nights called Mandatory Metallica, mm-hmm. where it was just like a few hours of just Metallica tunes. Love it. Um, it was a big deal when the station shut down. I was a huge fan. I had a shirt that on the back had like this decrepit skeleton. Love it. And it and it and it uh I think it said KNC, if it's too loud, you're too old. Oh yeah. Dude, by the way, speaking of that, I finally got this bitchin' uh early eighties tape deck in my studio. And uh we'll finally be able to listen to Anal Vomit, first of all. Yes, yes. Number two though, the tape that has I'm just kind of really into cassette tapes right now. I've been playing it more than vinyl, but the cassette tape that has been fucking jamming in my studio is the Bob Marley one that you got me. Ooh, the survival record. That's a great record. Like, just, I'm talking jamming it real hard. Yes, I'm so proud of you, And Clint. then, And then in my living room, the A-Rig, I've been fucking rocking King Tubby, and my wife was like, why are you listening to all this music like this? <laughs> You're like, I'm friends with Ethan. Well, <laughs> I was like, I don't know. Like, it's just kind of easy to put on, and you, you don't have to pay attention to it, but when you do it so dope... I was like, and plus, yeah. like, I think your record really is a gateway because we spun let it we spun let it burn for like two months straight, right? Yeah. And it was just kind of opened up some doors for us in terms of like dub and reggae and shit. So that's awesome, man. You know it, it, what you're saying about how it's like kind of easy music to put on and like have in the background, but if you listen to it, 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 it does go deep. It's to me, it's very unoffensive music sonically. Yeah. Um, right. Like I really I don't know if I know anybody or ever met anybody that's like fuck reggae that music pisses me off right it's like oh this is chill cool put it on Um, but even though as you know but like 
Bob Marley is the Beatles of reggae. He's like the easily the most popular reggae artist ever. And for good reason, his shit is super dope. But oh, yeah. a lot of his work, though, he's almost like the Springsteen of reggae, too, because it's like a lot of it's really politically motivated. Oh, 100%. I yeah. mean, if you're talking songs like Exodus and Get Up, Stand Up and fucking uh, Redemption Song, these are all songs that kind of should piss you off in some yeah. way. But it just it's like the fucking spoonful of sugar, dude. It's like the Trojan horse. Dude, that's a, I'm, I mean, I'm so glad that you're, you're jamming that record, man. And speaking of cassettes, like, uh, I, I I do need to get a cassette deck. I just started building my B rig in the studio, like you have. I was right. inspired. Well, let me tell you this: uh, when you're on the road, I found this deck. It's a um, uh, it's it's a tech Technics deck, which is actually pretty dope. But it was thirty bucks in a pawn shop, and it has VU meters. So like, yes, you're just watching VU meters. It has this little internal light. Like, it's so fun, dude. And it was only I love thirty. That fucking dollars and i don't know if you have speaking of cassettes as well uh somebody on our bus on another tour left their amazon prime account logged into the apple tv okay and there's a ton of dope documentaries on there and we a bunch of us watched the other night there's one that's i think it's just called cassette and it's about the history of the cassette and the inventor of the cassette who's still alive i'll probably watch it tonight we have amazon prime dude you have to watch it It, it's really cool okay all right um so anyway so kanak can I call it Kanak? I know we've discussed yeah, yeah, this. They, okay. No, they, they they would call it Kanak. So it was a big deal, and the fact that, that Lars and James were kind of there to say goodbye in person, and I guess this was kind of an unknown thing until Lars recently tweeted about it, or Instagrammed about it, and he wrote, On this day in 95, pioneering hard rock radio station KNAC in Long Beach, Cali, shut down. The last song they played was Fade to Black. James and I were there with the emotional crew as an incredible chapter came to an end. KNAC was the first commercial station in the U.S. to play next-level hard rock 24-7 continuously and became the soundtrack and part of every experience of us uh, when we were hanging in SoCal, especially when we recorded the Justice and Black albums. Like, I didn't know that they were so sort of connected, and it's pretty cool that a radio station that important and that influential in hard rock, the last song they ever played was Fade to Black. I know, it's pretty cool. I I, I don't remember specifically if I actually listened to that last little sign-off with that song, but I do remember it kind of making like the local news, like KNAC shuts down, Metallica's there, last time they played is Fade to Black. Um, But I mean, they they were, like I said, they they had a whole evening show on Tuesdays or wherever, I think it was Tuesdays, called Mandatory Metallica, and I I used to record that shit on cassette. Did they ever play anything kind of far out, or was it always sort of main fair? Like, the hit- oh no, they, dude, they would go, they would go deep, man. They would play live stuff, B sides. Okay, that was cool. the first time I think I heard like, not bread fan. There was some B side her for the first time on man. That's why I would record it because they would play Sabbath, Inner Sandman, Puppets, and stuff like that. Yeah, but they would occasionally throw in. It was like three or four hours of just Metallica. Wow, it was that long. There was a sta- I, yeah. there, there. I mean, not to try to one up that or anything, but there was a station in Birmingham. Uh, who knows what it was called. 105.9 The Bear or something. And uh, they did they did a mandatory Metallica on Mondays, but it was 15 minutes. So it was usually three songs. Ah, uh, okay. But it was every Monday. So every Monday at like 8 o'clock, you knew you were getting 15 minutes of Metallica. That's awesome. So it was fun. Like, <clears throat> we used to live for that shit, me and my little crew. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you got a cassette deck ready to go with a new blank tape. Your mom let you buy it, t- Tower Records. And the second Manitoba Metallica started, you hit play and record at the same time well, and let that shit ride. Dude, it's so funny you mentioned that. So when I bought the deck, I was on the road. I bought it on the road. So, of course, I just <laughs> I hooked it up to the receiver in the front lounge. Like yeah, I ended did. up buying a bunch of tapes at this other record store. And, 
and everyone's curious about the VU meters and like the input knob. And I'm like, dude, because there's all these functions on there for recording incoming audio. And I'm yeah. like, I'm like, dudes, because some of the dudes in the band are a little younger than me. I'm like, you got to understand, taping stuff was such a huge fucking deal. Absolutely. Like it was just such a huge part of the culture of a music lover was to tape stuff off the radio. It was so fun, man. And then like you know, tape trading, you know, this, this whole history with Lars doing that with with their demos and stuff. But I mean, I, I would record stuff on the radio and go to school the next day and with my Walkman and go to my buddy like, dude, they played this live Metallica thing from like exactly. eight or whatever. And it was so fun. Do, doing the tape trading thing or like the copying stuff, you had to have a dual deck, and I, I never had that, but. That you started to get sophisticated back then. If you had the dual deck, you know, and you could like copy tapes and oh, dude, that was the best. That's when that's when back in the day when you you make mix mixtapes for friends or for a girl or whatever. And oh yeah, um, and then there was the whole trick. If you had an actual tape that was by a band you bought in the store, there's the little tabs on top of the cassette that you know those are those are punched out when you buy a cassette. But you of, yeah of you, a band. you make them a mixtape. Oh, but but the best part was if you had a tape that you didn't like anymore and you wanted to record over it, there you, you put go. scotch scotch tape over those exactly. It was the best. Um, another interesting thing that they did that same day, I guess, as a promotional thing, is Kirk did, in what must be one of the most primitive versions of an Ask Me Anything Ever, he did an AOL chat. And Crazy. It's pretty fun. I would encourage you all, if you're interested in that sort of thing, just Google it. Google Kirk Hammett, AOL chat 95. You can read the whole transcript. And it's <laughs> cool. He talks about his favorite songs to play live, his proudest moments in the band, uh, what their new records sound like, all that stuff. He's talking a lot about the material they they're currently writing for what would become Load and Reload, which that's cool. And I was gonna kind of read through some of it, but I was like, nah, fuck that. Just go <laughs> check it out if you dig it. If you dig that yeah, kind of sure. thing. So then, kind of the most important thing. I mean, this is a, essentially a pretty slow year. I think ordinarily, you and I would maybe team this up with '96. But because our schedules are so crazy, and I think we were able to get some mileage out of kind of the making of load, we can kind of roll through right. this. But not a lot happens. So the next thing that really pings up is May 1st is when the load reload recording sessions begin. As you all know from listening to our multiple episodes on these records, they recorded it at the plant in Sausalito with Bob Rock. Now, what was unusual about Sausalito is it's so close to where they all lived. Right, yeah. Obviously, the records in Copenhagen, other than Lars, were super foreign to them. One on one studios is in LA. They live in San yep. Francisco. So Sausalito, can you give everyone a, a kind of an idea of Sausalito's proximity to San Francisco? I mean, if they all lived in San Francisco proper at the time, I mean Sausalito's like without traffic, probably less than thirty minutes away. So it's basically in their neighborhood. It's, it's local. Yeah, totally. This would mark as the probably the closest place they recorded um, up to this point to home. Other than when they've made like. Hardwired at HQ two, right? I'm saying to to date, you know, for, right uh, before this, you know, that you know maybe with uh, we'll kill them all. They made in New York, so it's like well, I, so the two records they've made at HQ two, as far as I, if I'm not getting something wrong, which you can tell me if I'm not, um, are Saint Anger and Hardwired, because they yes. made Death Magnetic at Rick Rubin's place in Los Angeles. But think about it at at this time, they all lived in San Francisco. Um, even when they made the record at HQ Hardwired, Kirk, James lives in Colorado, Kirk lives in Hawaii, Robert lives in Los Angeles. So this is probably the only time that they really did make a record while they all lived in the neighborhood. Right, exactly. Yeah, they're all local. They could all be there whenever they wanted to and get there quick and still go home with their families or whatever. And for those of you who are interested in maybe some of the psychology of this, it's 
it's sometimes not great to make a record where you can go home because you get distracted. Like, right. The Stones famously made a record in Muscle Shoals, so the, and Muscle Shoals is a town that has a history for great music, but it kind of shuts down at night. There's nothing there, really. And, right, the, and yeah, the, exactly. I think it was Glenn Johns who produced that, and the idea was like, these big partiers, they didn't have anything else to do. There really wasn't a party there. So you had to just keep working on your record exactly. and like get less distracted. And by the way, I, I just briefly looked up uh, the studios they recorded Death Magnetic. Uh, they, they did do some of it at HQ, but it was also Sound City and Shangri-La, which is Rick place. Yeah, that's Rick place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, thank you for being thorough for that and avoiding emails that we'll have to ignore. That's, but ex- that's exactly why I did it. I know that, um, <clears throat> and again, I'm bringing this in just because this is my truth that I'm currently living, Ethan. Um, All right. Dave Matthews Band recorded my favorite record of theirs called Before These Crowded Streets um, out in California, the other side of the country from where they're from, and they were like living in a houseboat at the time oh so crazy it just brings us different energy when you kind of feel like you're elsewhere like you know Eddie um, I don't know why I almost said Eddie but Freddie Mercury he went and made some records like in Berlin just to have this vibe you know like yeah for sure so it is interesting I think when we're contextualizing load and reload think about the kind of party they were having when they were recording in their own hood right exactly except for old Bobby Rock who was really sad that he wasn't in Vancouver with his big family He's like in a hotel somewhere in Sausalito, hating probably hating his life. <laughs> Maybe so. I mean, or or, or you know, or having like a good said, time. Like, yeah, you, sometimes you get out of your comfort zone. I mean, he hey heck, he made the, the majority of the Black Album in L.A. You know, there's a really cool th- kind of thirty minute sort of cobbled together. It's kind of a shitty documentary about the making of Load, which when I found this on YouTube a few years ago, it was like a gold mine for me. But sure, of course, I trust you've seen this. Have you seen this, Ethan? Yeah, I have. For those of you out there who maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't, I'm just going to kind of walk through a little bit of some of the stuff that happens in the doc, and maybe we can riff on some of it. It kind of covers a lot here that's happening in majority of 1995 that we otherwise don't really know about from just reading, like, the timelines, you know? Yeah, for sure. So here's kind of what's happening in this 30-minute making of Load, is they are opening with Ronnie, which I find fun because they're kind of jamming it, and James is playing a Telecaster. And it's just such a sort of forgotten song from that time. It's really cool yeah. that this documentary opens with them jamming on that. Another interesting thing is, I think almost right after that, they're ripping on Memory Remains. And there are no lyrics, but the melody's there. And it's just James singing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's so interesting to me that he writes lyrics dead last. Yeah, that, that, that's been a habit of theirs for a long time. You, you, there's a lot of these behind-the-scenes documentaries on on all sorts of their records that you see them just kind of mumbling through lyrics. I mean, I, I don't know, man. I, I think sometimes, you know, lyrics come first and halfway through, but I think maybe maybe has this formula where, like, he wants to kind of hear the formation of most of the song before he really dives into it. It's just odd to me because, like, maybe I guess Fade to Black was, like, a, already a poem, but... It just right. seems to me like sometimes what you're going to say is going to sort of dictate the feeling of the music, and sure. they just don't do it that way. Occasionally, you'll hear like a you know mumbly verse, then all of a sudden he'll like sing the main hook of the chorus, which he does do that in this very thing we're talking about. He actually sings the chorus lyric, so maybe he did sort of know it was yeah. going to be about a sort of fading uh, movie star or something. Right. Exactly. Another note. A note I made. 
Because we sh- we sure do get Bob in his billowing white turtleneck. <laughs> uh, always a pleasure. I like to. I like. This is going to be a strange tangent, but <clears throat> I like to imagine the Metal Up Your Podcast fashion catalog. Okay. Ooh, it's going to be hot. And I and I like to imagine that on page maybe it's page twenty six. There's the full Bob Rock regalia of the the Bob Rock collection, if, if you will. Yeah, we've got the fanny pack. We've got the flowing, the uh, upside down waterfall ponytail. Yeah, the blouses. We've got the the, the blouses from Vancouver. <laughs> We've got the um, the turtlenecks, the billowing beautiful white turtlenecks. The acid wash jeans. Acid wash jeans. The beautifully um, cut and uh, perfectly combed blonde beautiful hair. It's just you can either buy individual pieces or you can buy the entire Bob Rock collection. It's gorgeous. Guess how much it costs? Forty nine ninety five. Fifteen thousand dollars after StubHub got a hold of the 15, catalog. Yeah, the bots bought all the pieces, uh, but it's it coming this summer. <laughs> um, Lars talks about how they wrote most of it at the dungeon, which they is what they called the studio. That was basically in his basement, and you can see, actually see a lot of footage of this. It doesn't look like a dungeon. I mean, I'm guessing they called it that because it's kind of dark and it's a basement, but right. it looks like kind of a b a b rig recording studio. Yeah, there's like about enough room in there for like a drum set, some uh, Hetfield rig. It's exactly. Like fo- I think it's it's it, primarily the footage I've seen of that of that spot is primarily it's Lars and Hetfield. It's spot. just them. Yeah, I mean, and but what's cool is they kind of walk you through some of it. So James is kind of sitting down at what looks like a console, and he talks yeah. about how they when they're banging it out in, in the quote unquote live room, which I think is just the same room or maybe one different room. They get the arrangements on an eight track Tascam. Which I had a four track task cam growing up. Oh yeah, same. And then he'll over he'll sit at this console and you can see him do it. He puts on he adds vocals and a lot of them are those kind of mumbly bullshit vocals. And maybe they'll do some guitars. Um and the song that they're kind of rocking while they're talking about this is Low Man's lyric. Yeah, that's awesome. Which is another song that just doesn't get a lot of love, but you can hear it with different lyrics in the background. And then it shows him and Lars like in the live room just playing it together and my sort of takeaway, the reason I'm bringing all this up is they really did get, if you've ever heard the load and reload demos, which we're lucky that a a listener sent us these a a few years ago, but they really did get the songs to very near completion, including bass lines before they get to the plant. So you can sort of just see the fastidious nature, the working nature of James and Lars, which is, I mean, to have near complete demos that, that are, you know, not let's say ninety five percent to the what we hear on the record. It's crazy that they managed to achieve that with only what like a, not even a year before this, still finishing up the black album cycle. They were doing it in between tours. Like, well, they were it's riding crazy. it on the road, and then in between tours, instead of going home. See, this is where it's just important, like their age and their timeline and their personal lives, because instead of going home to families, which probably would have been good for them, they just wanted to keep working. Well, remember, like I think was it wasn't it three of the four of them got divorced during the Black Album, right? Exactly. So, so there's a good chance like they were all single at this point and like had nothing else, you know, no one to go home to. So they're like, "Fuck it, let's write a record." Yeah, totally. Well, and we're all lucky for that. I think you know, some people obviously, some people think that the Load era is sort of a bloated time, and that maybe they should have done some editing. I obviously, it's well known to our listeners. I don't agree. I think we're really lucky to have even the outlier songs like Attitude or Prince Charming or Bad Seed or Ronnie. I think we're lucky to fucking have those songs because I think they're so cool. I agree. I'm with you, man. I totally agree. Um, <clears throat> there is a funny scene. I can't tell if it's... 
I can't tell if it's like mocked up or not where Lars I guess because I guess him and James are working really late and at one point Lars calls Jason he's like Jason wake up we need you to come here and then he calls Bob and he's like Bob where are you oh you're at a strip club which apparently Bob is a very tight-laced family man (laughs) who that's what they're joking about is like he does he would never go to a place like that or whatever yeah totally they show James in his truck and uh he's talking about how he literally keeps a pen and paper in his truck for writing and then he says he has a portable dat player he'll sing into um we're going to talk about this a little bit later but they ended up doing these three kind of huge interesting cool gigs that are based around the donnington show um but the documentary shows they were doing this thing called the shortest straw contest which i think was through the so what magazine and okay. part of the winners, they got to go with Kirk to his local guitar store, which was called Black Market Music. And it's, oh, yeah, totally. It's literally Kirk driving them. He's, like, smoking a cigar the whole time. Right, yeah. And they go in, and they all play Inner Sandman together. I remember seeing this, yeah. You know, it's it, it's so, it was such a cool contest to win if you were one of these, one of these people that won. Uh, yeah, to go to a shop in San Francisco and obviously jam with Kirk. Well, and have Kirk, A, give you sort of a... First-hand tutorial of how to play what has now become what I am not backing down from, uh, the greatest heavy metal riff of all time, which he wrote totally. himself. Congratulations, yep. Kirk, my homie. I love Kirk so much, dude. I know. I would love to go surfing with him. He gets so much shit, but I just love him so much. I know he's awesome. Um, but it's cool. He's like showing them while Sandman. He takes one of the fans to get his navel pierced, like because at the time Kirk had that, you know, like navel oh, yeah. piercing and. Kirk, yeah, he got into piercings, had his labrae pierced, which is your basically your lip. Um, had Probably had his nipples pierced. I know Lars did. Uh, well, I can't speculate on that. Nor can I. Fans also get to come in the studio and watch the band just track shit. Like, they play yeah, that, that bitch for everyone. They let him hear it. Which, you know, it's interesting to see everyone, like, headbanging to it. But I'm like, were they secretly thinking, oh, no, where's, what is this? Where's my Metallica? But I could, I mean, think about it. If, if like that, you obviously you heard the black album. Let's say you were a fan. Maybe you were a little hesitant. You win this contest. You get to go in the studio. If there's one song off of Load that you're gonna play your fans, yeah. it's like this. This will get them stoked. It's probably Ain't My Bitch. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree. I w- I was reading in preparation for this episode today. Um, Joel McIver's book in this era, and reading Mick Wall's book in this era, and both of them are just slagging all that, and it just made me feel like. Like, we kind of have had a few lines out to talk to Joel McIver about uh, to be on the show as a guest. And I kind of thought, I don't know if I even want to, because he's he's pretty intense about this era. But because I feel the same way. I'm like, ain't my bitch is heavy. It's are you kidding? It's totally heavy. It sounds like kind of black album heavy shit. Yeah, I agree. One hundred percent, man. So they play they play bitch for everyone where they're all sort of in the main the control room, which is the room where the console usually is, and it's usually when you go into a, a main tracking room, you all come in the control room together and listen through what you're doing. So they're all in there like kind of listening to it with Metallica, which I think is really cool. Uh, yeah. But then the band they invite some of these dudes. And I don't think there were any chicks there, just dudes to like even jam with them. So they're playing puppets. Lars comes out and sings "Am I Evil" because one of the fans is a drummer. James is on bass. It just seems super loose in a super fun way. Yeah, no, that sounds totally fun. Dude. I mean, just everyone switching instruments, having a good time. Because uh, a lot of times, anytime you see uh, any kind of fan contest or fans jamming with the band, it's usually some kid on guitar. So it's cool to see a, a fan of theirs hop on Lars's kit, 
Lars just jumps on the uh, the vocals, and it's all it's all good fun. Well, then they play Devil's Dance, which is which is also interesting to me because to me, for them to play that. Here are the two things that interest me about that. Number one, it seems like they're probably really excited about it. And these shows that they end up playing in August, they play that song. Number two, it indicates to me that they were probably more done with it, and yet it came out on Reload, which means they weren't done with it yet, because otherwise it would have been on Load. Right. So that, like, because they play 2x4 at these shows too, but as we know, 2x4 is on Load, so it was already done. It just seems like Devil's Dance... It's already done. Why did it come out on Reload? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, it, it, if they recorded both these records kind of at the same time, my question is, was everything done before Load came out? No. Or, or did they... I, I didn't think so. No. It, well, because you know the way they do, they get drums first, and then they build. So maybe you're right. Maybe the arrangement was done, and like the song yeah. was done where they could play it live, but they just had not gotten around to... like. We have drums for it. We just don't have the final guitars or the final vocal. Yeah, and maybe when they're playing it live, they thought, oh, yeah, this is going to be on the first one for sure, on load. And then as time went on, the more songs came to completion, they thought, oh, let's save it for the other one. Yeah, and we're, we're going to get into some of this, this set list stuff for these three shows, which are pretty cool. But um, the last thing that kind of happens is, I guess they sort of have a day with Jason. I have a typo here in my notes, say James, but it's Jason, where he takes them all BMX biking. And they they, awesome. they call it a bike-a-thon. And... Uh, <clears throat> I mean, it's just classic Jason shit. He seems, it's just everything we love about him. He's super down to earth. There's a scene earlier where he's in the control room and he's really wanting to put like names to faces so he gets it right. He's like, no, no, what's your name, dude? I want to make sure I get it right so he can look them in the eye, call them by their name, treat them like fucking human beings. He's not right, yep. Even though he's in the biggest metal band of all time. Well, you know, uh, also, what they don't show in the documentary, uh, where they actually went on their bike-a-thon, they went up into the hills Ooh. near near San Francisco to, you guessed it, forage for exotic mushrooms. Oh, my God. So that's why they came back with fanny packs literally bursting with psychedelics. Exactly. And what do they do? They put them in an omelet? Is that what happened? Yeah, they put them in an omelet uh, the next morning. All the fans spend the night at Jason's house, and he makes an omelet the next morning with all these psychedelic special mushrooms i mean they are in san francisco for god's sake dude so uh they just all trip out the next morning dude, it's really cool i got a great idea for later hear me out let's right. squeegee our third eye <laughs> and then go like into the desert and forage for exotic mushrooms yeah man don't we can listen. you dare tease me with a good time <laughs> <laughs> and don't you Ever make fun of the Grateful Dead while we're eating mushrooms. <laughs> They're my family. We're the family. <laughs> so go check. I, by the way, I pretty much explained the entire documentary to you. But go check it out if you haven't seen it. Because it's fun to see them in that time. Being in that it kind is. of vibe. For sure. June 20th. This is the first time this has ever happened. Kill them all. Ride the lightning. And puppets are quote unquote. My quotes added. Remastered for modern stereo equipment. And re-released by Electra. Um, you know, there's a lot of different opinions on the validity of a remaster. A lot of people think these remasters were bullshit. They're just louder. Sort of an excuse for Electra to sell, resell records to you that you already own. I mean, I'm sure, you know, obviously stereo technology was moving at a different pace at that time. Um, at this point, obviously CDs are the norm, uh, format to listen to music. Um, but those, these records already existed on CD, uh, so I, I don't know. Maybe, 
maybe maybe somebody at their label at management talked them into it. Hey, listen, this new you know the CD technology has come a long way in the last ten years, and CD players now can play things that sound better. Let's remaster these. But who knows? Or it could be as simple as let's sell some more records. I think it's probably whack. It's probably jive. I did read um, in my research today. I read a really interesting article. I'm not going to try to distill it for you guys. I just think if you're interested in kind of the fidelity in, in these kinds of things. So go to metal-fi.com. So it's metal-fi, but there's a hyphen in between metal and fi. Metal-fi.com, there's an article called Injustice for Sound. And it's this obviously very anal, um, astute sound audiophile sound nerd who yeah. breaks down not only these remasters, remasters but goes all the way through the whole band's catalog like up to present day up to the 20 oh, cool. up to the 2016 like box the kill em all box set and such that's awesome and he actually like plays them back to back he compares them with the like he compares the kill em all reissue box set from 2016 with the original metal blade uh vinyl from 83 that's pretty cool and that, you know that also might be a really helpful thing for those of you out there that maybe aren't uh, audiophiles or or musicians engineers whatever that might be truly curious as to how this works what exactly it is um and to hear audio examples like you said i think it'd be really cool for some yeah it's pretty thorough and and i endorse it like i i read it today i was i learned a lot i was going to put some of it in in the notes but just i'm just going to refer you to it Go look it up, and maybe even I'll find the guy that wrote the article and see if he wants to be on the show because maybe he has a cool. He's a he's a good writer too. He's, it's a well written uh, article. So anyway, again, metal hyphen fi dot com. The article is called "Injustice for Sound." Very cool. You heard it here, First. August seventeenth. Now this is where these sort of interesting gigs start to happen. So they ended up calling this the Escape from the Studio tour which is obviously humorous because it's not really a tour it's basically two shows but before the two shows on august 17th they played a private rehearsal at hun sound studios in san rafael california for met club members only small group of met club members and this is the same set list they would play for the rest of the shows but the notable songs were bread fan god that failed two by four the kill ride medley and devil's dance and two by four and devil's dance would go on these were going to be the the song debuts of these songs so yeah it's interesting that out of that whole batch of material first of all they're playing the god that failed i think that's fucking bitching that's amazing yeah but the 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 songs they chose to play were two by four and devil's dance that's so interesting two songs that did not go on to become singles yeah not at all that really didn't go on to become very notable other than being badass but like they weren't it wasn't king nothing or hero of the day or until it sleeps or unforgiven two you know what i'm saying Right. Well, like I said before, I mean, they're, they're still in the studio working on all this stuff. And maybe these ones initially seemed like they're going to be the singles or because two before I could maybe see me. It's the second track on the record. Yeah. Second track on love. Yeah, that's right. A, lo- a lot of times bands will do that. Like this, the main single is within the first five, five tracks. I think two by four could have been a single. I really do. I love two by four. So this was basically a preparation gig for august 23rd they played another small club gig again for met club members at london astoria 2 in london you can watch this whole show on youtube uh to familiarize you with the vibe jason kind of has a short curly afro kirk hammett's i think rocking the dreadlocks at this time maybe not the dreadlocks that was kind of late 94 uh james is rocking the full-on 
mullet vibe. Oh yeah, the, the mullet with the handlebar mustache. This was yes. a, this was an interesting look for Hetfield at the time. Right, and the, you can see it perfectly distilled <clears throat> in this Escape from the Studio '95 tour. And there's an interesting little documentary about that too that it, you can all go look at. Corrosion of Conformity opened the show. And then, of course, the Big Daddy show that they sort of centered all this around was August 26, Monsters of Rock, at, of course, Castle Donington. They're now staples of this gig. Yep. They played the exact same set list. Other acts were Therapy, Skid Row, Slash's Snake Pit, White Zombie, Machine Head, Warrior Soul, and Corrosions of Conformity, which explains why they were already in Europe and explains yep. why they opened up that club gig. I would love to see Corrosion set from the club gig in London. Yeah, no joke. Like, I wonder if there's any footage of that. I've never really looked for that. Do you know that Corrosion Conformity recently played in, at Exit Inn in Nashville? Don't tell me that. Are you fucking kidding me? Uh, I'm not kidding you. Uh, Bruce, uh, from Bruce Fitzy from Living Sacrifice, posted a photo about it. I was, I was gone. Uh, I'll, have to, I'll have to relook it up to, to, to see what the exact date was. But Well, I know Bruce I listens like, to the show. My question to Bruce is, why didn't you contact me? Why didn't you invite <laughs> me? Uh, Bruce, you know that we wanted to go. Why did we not go together? <laughs> well, shit, I hate that I missed that. It, it, the, my first thought when you said that before FOMO was it bums me out that they're playing a place like Exit Inn. Right, yeah. For those of you who don't I'm, know, it's a really cool club. It's a great rock club, but we're talking maybe five, 600 cap. I'm going to tell you right now, it was less than a month ago. I just looked up Bruce's Instagram where he posted about it, and it was March 1st. Damn it. God damn and, it. And it looks packed. Well, thank goodness was, it was packed. I was gone. Yeah, yeah, it was packed. Okay, well, shoot. I hate Next that I time. missed that. Next time. I oh, know. That's okay. That's okay. September 3rd, and we're there's not much after this. They played uh, Tuck to You to, to you, Tuck. Talk to You. Talk to You, Tuck. It's, a, it's, a, it's in Canada. It was part of the promotion for the Molson Beer. Like, it was a Molson beer advertisement thing, but it's basically a small settlement in the Arctic Circle. Mm-hmm. And it's a super weird gig. You can kind of watch another little documentary about this, too. It's it's one of the weirder things they ever did. Yeah, this one is super weird, especially all the interaction with Courtney it Love. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So, the other bands were Hole, which you just mentioned Courtney Love, which this right. is not long after Kurt passed away. Yeah, she was still. You can tell she's doing some stuff. Super in fucked this. up in it. Veruca Salt <laughs> yeah. and the band Moist, which I don't remember. Moist. I don't either. But Veruca Salt was cool. Oh, dude, I, I loved Veruca Salt. What was that big song they had? Uh, uh, did they do Pretend That We're Dead? They did that Cannonball song, or was that the Breeders? I think I thought Cannon. I thought Cannonball was the Breeders. Oh shit, maybe I have it wrong. There, there, there's a few like female rock bands in the mid '90s that uh, can definitely blend together. But I know Veruca Salt, Salt, the Breeders. They, I thought they called a record Eight Arms to Hold You," which was what the Beatles were going to call "Help." Oh, uh, okay. Veruca Salt, Eight Arms. Yeah, eight, their second album, Eight Arms to Hold You," was produced by Bob Rock. Look at this. Look at that. I'm creating podcast magic. I'm simply reading fucking Wikipedia. Their second album, Eight Arms to Hold You, produced by Bob Rock, released in 97, lead single, Volcano Girls, gained exposure as the opening theme to the teen comedy film Jawbreaker. They performed another single, Shutterbug, on Saturday Night Live. I don't know that. Um, okay, so this isn't really making that much sense to me in terms of what I'm <laughs> recognizing them from. So their singles... I think, I think you're thinking of the Breeders. Their singles were Seether, Number One Ballad, Victrola, Volcano Girl, Shutterbug, The Morning Sad, 
Born yeah. Entertainer, Only You Know. Do you recognize any of these songs? Uh, kind of. I, they're one of those bands that I definitely was into in the 90s, like in high school, but I haven't listened to in a long time, so I need to go back and kind of get a refresher. Let's see. The Breeders, Studio Albums, Pod, Last Splash, Tile TK. Last Splash. I remember that one. Damn. Yeah, I got to dive back into some Veruca Salt, man. There's some good 90s full-on chick bands that are just great, man. Well, I know that chick from Four Non Blondes has gone on to be like a huge songwriter. Oh, Linda Perry? She's like, a huge songwriter. Like Linda Perry wrote, You are beautiful no matter yeah. what they say. Words can't bring you down. down. Yeah, she's, Linda Perry's in a ton of that stuff. That is a monster, monster song. Oh, yeah. Well, while we're <clears throat> in the fucking uh, library corner, let's just look up Moist. Moist band. Which is most people's, one of their least favorite words. <laughs> Canadian band, originally formed in 92. David Usher is lead vocalist. Mark McAway on lead guitars. Jonathan Gallivan on guitars. Keith Young on keyboards. Okay, boring. That is all boring. I wonder if there's a Bob Rock connection because they're also Maybe. Canadian. Uh, I wonder if if they uh, where in Canada does it say they're from? Um, Vancouver. Uh oh. Huh. Vancouver. That's where Bobby's Van- from. Vancouver. <laughs> I'm now looking at so no Kevin Hamilton didn't produce their first record, their second record, produced by Paul Northfield. Another name I don't recognize. Is it surprising us that we don't know who these people are? The next one, David Leonard. No, I don't think Bob Rock had to touch any of this shit. Okay, well, yeah, there you go. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. Moving on. Maybe they want a contest to open. Who knows? Well, they're from Canada. Here's the deal. 500 contest winners went to the show. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere. Um, but what's really fascinating about it is that the first like five minutes of it feature the band at Soundcheck. The song they're playing at Soundcheck is Fixer. I know, it's crazy. It's I've like seen the, this before. It's like the only thing we really have ever seen of that. And guess what? It sounds great. Yes. Shoot. So it's like intermixing footage of them on a private jet and then with them sound checking Fixer. It's so cool. <laughs> Lars talk, talking about Courtney Love like coming out in diapers. It's weird. Courtney Love interactions in, in this 15-minute thing are super weird. Well, there's a scene where Courtney's talking to James and Francesca, his wife, who would go on to be his wife, but I guess they're already together. And yeah. she's talking about how she's, like, sleeping with the dudes that are fans of Hole, but they were, like, puking in the bed and shit. And then she pretend proposed to Lars. Yes. And he said, when people ask me how long it's going to last, I always tell them, as long as it takes to get to know each other. <laughs> right. Anyway. It, it's just kind of awkward and weird with whole, her, man. This whole gig is weird to me. Yeah, first it of, is First very of weird. all, it's just a huge beer sponsorship for Molson Beer, which is super lame to me for, like, a huge band to do. Like, did they really yeah. need the beer money from Molson? B, they're playing in the middle of nowhere where there are no... Fa- they had to bring all their fans there. Right, They're yeah. playing with fucking Hole. And Courtney's being super flirty, dr- weird, drugged out, and fucking with the band and stuff. Which, may, I mean, who knows? With Hole, it could kind of make a little sense to me because at this time, they're, you know, they're diving into some 90s shit like Alice in Chains. That kind of music is huge. Cor- Courtney Love's band, Hole, has become huge post 
uh, Kurt Cobain's yeah, death. Yeah, Hole, Hole was big in the mid '90s, no doubt. Yeah, so maybe they thought it was a good opportunity. Like, hey, let's let's play something. But even that's a little pre different. celebrity skin, like, what was their big song? Be- oh, Doll Parts. Oh, I doll yeah, I think Celebrity Skin's their best record. I'm super fucked up. By the way, a little side note, our bus just started rolling to the hotel, and I think this is the first time I've been on a moving bus while recording a podcast. Well, life is just a fucking miracle that unfolds like a beautiful lotus flower in hell, in space. I kind of want to open the back window and start yelling at people. <laughs> Please, God, don't do that. I won't do that. We're almost out of here. We are. The last thing we have in 1995, Metallica rehearsed the four Motorhead covers of The Plant for Lemmy's birthday, and then the next day they played it at the Whiskey A Go-Go. These are the same tunes that ended up uh, as the singles for Hero of the Day, and then, of course, on Garage Inc. And uh, they, I guess, dressed kind of as Lemmy. They recalled the Lemmys. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, they all, they all kind of looked like Lemmy. Um, he, it seems he's had, like... Uh, so the birthday party, uh, did you mention this? Was, was it at the Whiskey? Yeah, the Whiskey at Go-Go. Yeah, they, they've done multiple of these. I think they did it for like his 70th birthday, too. And I think the Foo Fighters played and did something similar. They dressed up like Motorhead. Well, they did Overkill, Damage Case, Stone Dead Forever, Too Late, Too Late, The Chase is Better Than the Catch, and We Are the Road Crew. And it says, in a jam based on Overkill, they were dressed as Lemmy in black wigs and white cowboy boots. Uh, th- I'm reading from... Um, uh, Joel McIver's book right now. Oh, cool. He says, Metallica's performance was blisteringly powerful. He says he asked Lemmy in 2001 if he'd enjoyed Metallica's versions of his songs. And this is what Lemmy said. He said, yeah, they're all right. I think Too Late, Too Late was the best one. It was funny hearing Jimmy. He calls James Jimmy. It was funny hearing Jimmy simulating my voice because they obviously didn't get it. They obviously think that shouting's all it is, and it's not. It's just my voice. <laughs> it's like, dude, you're talking about Metallica, though. Like, isn't it cool that? I guess that's just true rock stardom. He's like, yeah, they're all right. I mean, they didn't really get it right, but it's fine. I mean, to him, though, I mean, it's like you know, I'm sure he's close with, or was close with them, yeah, and and respected them for sure. But yeah. like, he's also part of the reason Metallica's a band. Absolutely. And, and knows that, Absolutely. Too. So what are you going to do? You're going to be a fucking fanboy about it? Hell like, no. Oh, my God. They were amazing. Oh, my God. James was incredible. What a fucking honor. Oh, my God. And it was so cute that, like, they all dressed up as me. They had these white was... cowboy boots on. I could have died. And by the way, everybody, I know, we're really good at impersonating Lemmy. <laughs> hey, well, you know what Lemmy sounds like? Becky. <laughs> Oh, my God, they played the whiskey. I was, like, barely 21 when I got to go in there for the first time. Oh, my God. When I saw Jimmy come out and he was wearing a black wig, I was like, don't you dare. You stop it. You stop it. I literally almost died. (laughs) I literally died. I literally could have almost did die. Well, seeing as how your bus is rolling, we've we've concluded our hour of Metalla Talk. Uh, what should we say to the good people before we split? We should say we love you. We uh, appreciative of your support uh, through these last two years. This is uh, we're still rolling on. The train is rolling. Train's rolling. It's not not rolling. It ain't like it not. It ain't like it's not not rolling. Here's what happened uh, a few days ago. Actually, two days ago. Wait, what's today? Sunday. Here's what happened yesterday. Sunday. Yeah. 
<laughs> I've been a touring musician for so long that I get so fucked up on the days. So here's what here's happened. Here's what happened this morning. <laughs> here's what happened yesterday. We got these like organizing shelves for our garage. Completely reorganized my garage, which is HQ2, by the way. And I've have full stock and inventory of all of our metallic gifts. Oh, nice. We will be giving these away. This is going to get real serious starting in April. Yeah. And that's no joke. These are going to be patron giveaways. We're due for another box set giveaway. So if you like the show, leave the iTunes review. Uh, go get involved in the Patreon level. You're gonna Here's what you're going to get immediately if you sign up on Patreon. You're going to get two EPs of Metallica covers exquisitely made by me and Ethan, where we play and sing every instrument. Uh, you're going to get Lunar Satan jams. You're going to get some Ethan Luck uh, bonus material from Let It Burn. We've got all. I don't even remember all the stuff we've put up there that are bonus. There's also there's all sorts of stuff on there. So there's cool stuff going on with Patreon. Plus, we're going to be doing all these giveaways. We've already given away like three or four box sets. So um, go get involved at that level. Leave us the reviews. Go follow us on the socials. We have fun there all week during the week. And uh, go look at our respective social medias to see where we're at in tour. And uh, we'll get you some tickets and come to a show and say hello. Come on, hang out. And with that, I think it's just right and true and correct and thorough and sexy to say peace. Adios. <laughs> if you were our advisor, what would you say? Then I would say, delete that. <laughs>